Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we speak with Prince historian Dwayne Tudal about the recently released Sign of the Times expanded reissue. Welcome back to the Rhino Podcast, friends. We have our good friend John Hughes with us today. John, how are you? I'm good. What's up, Rich? Oh, you know, just doing the do. It's Groundhog Day out here in pandemic land. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you. (laughs) What's new at Rhino.com, man? What's new? I saw there was a bunch of new releases popped up this week. You know, I don't think I have to tell everybody about Prince's Sign of the Times, Super Deluxe Edition, so I won't tell you guys about that, but it's there. It's amazing. Going into this one today, big time, with Dwayne, who is the uh, Prince historian and author, and he actually wrote the liner notes. So there you go. You got that covered. So I'll talk about Eric Clapton's Crossroads Guitar Festival 2019, which is, again, this fantastic festival that happens. And uh, if you're a guitar fan, I can't think of a better festival for you. It's right there on the tin. It's got so many different configurations. There's a six LP set, double Blu-ray and DVD sets. There's even a three CD set, if that's your thing. And the lineup is just jam-packed. You got Jeff Beck, Los Lobos, John Mayer, Bonnie Ray, Peter Frampton, Buddy Guy, Vince Gill, Cheryl Crow. I mean, come on. It's out in November, November 20th. It's a great, diverse lineup of absolutely stellar pickers, and it never fails to just deliver the great, great music that you expect to get from that lineup. Exactly. And if you are a Whitesnake fan, and from what we've seen, there's plenty of you out there, you're going to love this one. It's uh, Get It Love. It's Whitesnake's Love Songs. (laughs) It's a 15-track collection with remixed and remastered versions of the band's best love songs, plus some unreleased stuff from David Coverdell's Into the Light Sessions. That one's out November 6th, and it's on a 2LP red vinyl set, CD, and always digitally. Cool. And you know, I am the biggest David Bowie fan there is. I have two David Bowie tattoos. Did you know that? I did actually did not know that. <laughs> so I, I got my bona fides. It's like right there on my skin. And this one is super cool. It's David Bowie Metropolist. I think that's how we're saying it. It's uh, basically the man who sold the world 50th anniversary edition. It's out November 6th on vinyl, CD, high-res download. And this is the album more closely to how Bowie originally envisioned it, the art and everything. And of course, you know, Tony Visconti, that longtime Bowie collaborator, he remixed this. It just, it sounds amazing. Now, here's the thing. If you're a Bowie fan, this is limited. So if this is you, you got to jump on it now. Yeah, because this stuff sells out. Inevitably, Bowie is going to sell out. So, yeah, absolutely. Yep. And if you want more information on any or all of these and see what else is up, always hit us up at rhino.com. Thanks very much, John. Happy to be here. We'll see you next time. Son of the Times is Prince's ninth album and has just been re-released in a massive, expanded reissue that includes over eight hours of music and more than 60 previously unreleased tracks, including two complete concert recordings. Dwayne Tudal, Prince historian and author, wrote the liner notes for the release and is our guest today on the Rhino Podcast. Dwayne, thanks very much for joining us here on the Rhino Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Why don't you tell folks a little bit about what you do, what your career is, and how you're involved with the Prince Estate? I've been a Prince fan since uh, probably early 80s, Controversy album. 
And so I've been following him for years. I wrote for a magazine called Uptown and I wrote a book called Prince in the Purple Rain Era Studio Sessions back in 2017. And that covered a two-year period of Prince's career. Prince's estate saw the book and liked the book enough. And they asked me if I'd be interested in, in uh, working with them. I've been working for them for almost two years. I'm the senior researcher for the Prince Estate Archives. Oh, fantastic. And you yeah. wrote the liner notes, some of the liner notes for the new Sign of the Times Super Deluxe Edition. That's correct. By the way, I love the album. So the, the being able to write the liner notes was a complete honor. Oh, isn't it great when your loves dovetail with your vocation? It's just the best. It's so gratifying. It doesn't happen enough. It, it does not happen enough I in life. No, it doesn't. You know? I know. We're blessed when it does. So oh, yeah. there is so much to discuss about this amazingly massive box set loaded with so much unreleased material. How much unreleased material is there on this box set? Uh, the box set itself has, I think, three discs of unreleased material. Wow. On top of that, it has another two discs of a concert that hasn't circulated, that was never um, released, and also a DVD that has a full concert uh, that he did at Paisley Park. The concert, the DVD thing, which is fun because that has only, there's been clips of it on, online, but the full concert has never been released. Oh. It was the first concert he did basically at, at Paisley Park. Paisley Park opened on September 11th, 1987, and he did the show but December 31st, 87. So it was the first time he invited people in other than when he was recording the Sign of the Times movie, but it really was his first real showcase of this. And so it was kind of not only showing, showing off what he can do and the band can do, but also Paisley Park. So he invited people, his parents were there. So it was kind of like a show and tell, look at what I've got, look what we're doing. And we're going to put on a little show for charity for you. And it's a lot of fun. A little housewarming, little open house. That's kind of what he did. And the fun thing about the video is we went back to the original footage of the video. My background is as a producer of TV shows. I'm a director and producer and editor of a lot of different TV shows and documentaries. So when I got a chance to be looking through the footage for the concert, we went back to the original tapes and all the angles and looked for things that weren't in there. Things like uh, close-ups of Prince's hand, close-ups of him singing, shots of him walking on stage where you see his silhouette, things that weren't quite on the original tape. We thought, you know, this is the kind of thing you want to see. And as a fan, you get to see more. So if somebody was going to compare what floated outside uh, in the uh, smaller clips, they would see that we've not only upped the quality, but up the sound, up the angles, and, and just kind of tighten things, made it so that you can see more of Prince, which is what you want to do when you're watching a video of Prince. The thing about Prince is everybody on stage has to watch him because he's always putting up his fingers, saying, on the one, you know, give me two hits. Everybody watched him, but everybody in the audience watched him too. So we wanted to make sure that everybody got that, that ability to watch him and, and see as many close-ups of what he's doing as possible. Yeah, fantastic. So Paisley Park, not only his recording studio, a live performance venue, obviously, as we were just discussing, it had his vault for all of his recordings. The stats on this record, I mean, it peaked at number six on the Billboard 200, and it was certified platinum only four months after its release. So people were hungry for it, obviously. Three out of the four album singles made the top 10 on the Billboard Hot 100. Sign of the Times, You Got the Look, and I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man. And Rolling Stone's album guide has said it's the most complete example of Prince's artistry's breadth and arguably the finest album of the 1980s. That's, I can't argue with that. You know, that's, that's some science they're laying down there. Um, <laughs> it's true. I mean, it is a great album. And the, the thing about these albums that is what makes it stand out for a lot of people is it's a transitional phase for Prince. Now, he'd done Purple Rain a few years earlier, and he was at the peak of his career. But then he came out with Around the World Day, which is a great album. And then Parade, which is also a really great album. But the sales of those were not quite Purple Rain. During the time also, the band, the revolution broke up. So... Out of the 16 songs, I think 11 of them were recorded during the time he was with the Revolution. And that didn't mean he recorded with them on every song, but he would have them come in sometimes for background vocals or just to play it for him. You know, just say, come on in here, I want to play this for you. And he'd just play it. So they were influencing him around that time. But at the end of um, the tour, on September 9th, the, the band played their last show in Yokohama, Japan. And after that, about a month after that, he broke the band up. But he'd been recording that entire fall and 
And this is in 19, which year was this? 86, 1986. Okay. Once he basically stopped recording with the band, he went crazy about recording additional stuff. Shockadelica, all these other songs that he was doing that didn't make the album, but they're great songs. his mindset going into this album what was happening in his career like you said it was kind of split half of it he was on the road so he wasn't continually recording because this album originally released on march 30th 1987 the original recording sessions began in march of 86 and then wrapped in january 87 obviously he was on tour through part of that it wasn't a continual recording process for a year but there's a lot of upheaval in his career at this point in time. He had actually started recording earlier than that. Some of the songs date back to 1985. He had been doing some of the stuff and some of the things he pulled from the vault as early as 1979. And Slow Love was from 1984. Some of it is songs he pulled out that he updated or re-recorded completely. Some was what he was doing during this time. Uh, during this era, he was filming uh, Under the Cherry Moon. And really busy with that. That was kind of, you know, you're filming, you're starring in and directing and doing the score for. You're overseeing. It, that's a lot of work. But he was still coming in and recording things. And this is a guy who nonstop wanted to be in the studio. I don't think he was happy unless he was doing something about music. Um, I think everybody around him related to him on a musical level. And if you didn't, you couldn't be in his inner circle. That's really how it was. Right. Um, it was said, somebody said to me that Prince didn't play music. He was music. It's very true. It's very true. And he said that he's actually said that. And, and the people around him have agreed with that. This, you know, he, his instruments were an extension of him and the studio was basically like a home for him. And I think that it was where he could be himself, where he didn't have to impress anybody. Sometimes they'd be really successful. Sometimes they would be uh, just an experiment. And he would go back and say, okay, well, I may pull a piece out of that later and use it. Um, but a lot of times it was just what he wanted to say. At any time, Prince could record two or three songs in a day, now, a complete song. I mean, So what, what that ends up being is a postcard into what he was doing at that moment and what he's feeling at that moment. So if he was upset that morning, he might write an angry song. And, but then after lunch, he might write a happy song because he had a good lunch or he had, you know, <laughs> whatever it was, where he, he worked it out with his, his person he was fighting with. So that's how he would, he would do. It. And, and what was around, he would say, come on in here and you record vocals on this. Like uh, Susanna Melvoin, who was his fiance at the time was around a lot. So she'd just say, I need your voice on this. And she'd come in and record some, some vocals for these things. She really, you got to understand this album is about, not only where Prince was uh, on a personal level, but also on a, a level emotional and spiritual and everything like this. And Susanna Melvoin was inspirational for half this album. Um, you know, it just in so many songs, she had either something to do with or she inspired it or she sang background on it. That's just how it is. The other ones, Wendy and Lisa were around a lot and they recorded quite a bit. I think that the sad thing to me is it really is a, um, a Prince and the Revolution album. It really is their last album in many ways it just they didn't get their name on it as they should have it is arguably his best album critically it may be his best album um there's just a such a range on this and the cool thing about this album he was working on several projects at the time he's working on dream factory and crystal ball and they all morphed into sign of the times sign of the times itself was a song that just happened to be on the project he was working on before uh, crystal ball but when he had when he was told by Warner Brothers they had to cut it down by by a third, he took the that song which was on a later disc and made that the title song, which put such a spotlight on on that song. It made it that much more vital, and it became something that that introspective, you know, that you have to actually you know look into um, as opposed to just this fun song. And and that's something that makes this collection that much better by by taking this one song and making it the focal point shine the spotlight on it it becomes you know what's going on as opposed to just some party album 
And there's some party album elements on it. Playing the Sunshine is a real big party song. Uh, Housequake is a big party song. But you have some really thoughtful songs, you know, Sign of the Times, and you have uh, Forever My Life or The Cross. You know, they come from somebody's heart. Oh, forever, forever. Baby, I want you forever. I want to keep you for the rest of my life. All that's wrong in my world, you can make right. You are my savior. You are my life. Forever, I want you in my life. What did happen with the revolution that led to the dissolution of that band? The revolution was going through some issues. Part of it was that Prince had exposed himself too much to some of these people. He's very close and intimate with Wendy and Lisa and didn't have his guard up. And I think that he felt vulnerable. And when they asked him, we'd like to have more responsibilities and more, you know, whatever it is. I think that he saw when they were asking for things as him not being loved or them not loving him. And he pushed back and was like, look, you know, I'd rather hurt you before you hurt me. I don't want to be vulnerable like that. So he, after the last show on the parade tour, he um, basically didn't see them for a month, kind of stepped back. And then about a month after that, he, he called them in and had a dinner with them and said, you know what, I'm going to go in a different direction. I love you guys, but I got I to gotta do this. And then he reached out to Bobby and, and let him go. And then said to Matt, you know, you can, you can stay if you want. You, you have the option of staying. And Matt chose to stay wisely. You know, why not? Sure. With Prince. Prince was expanding and wanted to go in a different direction. At the time, it seemed like, wait, what's going on? Because to all of us as a fan – the revolutions seemed like a family to him. You know, we'd seen him in a movie. We knew that, but we always thought of them as, you know, like some sort of tight buds. And they were like any relationship. You can't tell what it's like on the outside. You can only tell from the inside. And I think that what happened was you can see that there was decay inside there. And, and he wanted to, he wanted to bring Sheila in uh, to play drums. It wasn't like he didn't like Bobby. Bobby was one of his best friends and he'd been best friends for years and even after he broke up, he basically said, look, we're still buddies. We're still going to be great friends. And, and, you know, I think they always maintain that. But Prince was just looking to expand musically. The interesting thing to me was Prince recorded some stuff under the name The Flesh. Now, The Flesh was a jazz band he kind of was playing with, a loose band. It was, it was Prince and Sheila E. and uh, Levi Caesar, Wendy and Lisa, basically, and Eric Leeds. And they would come in and, and jam on some stuff with him. Looking back, it's obvious that this is more of an audition because it was of the people, Sheila E., Levi Caesar, and Eric Leeds all were in his band a year later. And Wendy and Lisa were no longer in the band. So it was sort of like an audition for them. Right. And, and uh, that's how they, you know, one of the things he was seeing if he rely on you because you have to be able to step up if you're going to play with him. You have to be able to keep up. What he was going through at the time also he had just had Under the Cherry Moon come out, and that failed. And that failed about two months, two, three months before he basically realized I'm dropping the band. I think he had a lot of um, feelings of, I need to prove something. You know, I need to show the world that it's not about anybody else. It's about me. And so he took the best stuff he had there and put it into a bigger package, a three-CD set, a three-album set called Crystal Ball. Warner Brothers listened to it and said, okay, that's great, but it's too long. Cut it down by a third. So he said, okay, I'll cut it down by a third. And then he goes back and records new music for it, which is crazy because they were basically just saying, look, just take out a third of the songs. We're good. And he said, yeah, I can do that, but I'm also going to record some new stuff because I like recording new stuff. So You Got the Look was recorded and added to the collection. He was generally liking to put forth the music he was recording most recently. He liked right. if some, if he did something that day, that's the song he wanted to hear because that was his biggest thing. 
It was like, oh, no, you got to want to hear this. That other stuff, I don't know what I was talking about. This is the jam. And he right. did that quite a bit with things, whether it's B-sides or things for his albums. Yeah. And he was going through some personal changes as well. You mentioned his fiance, and they parted in the middle of this project, didn't they? At the end of 1986, the revolution had broken up, and Prince had been recording by himself for a lot of the uh, Crystal Ball collection and then Sign of the Times collection. But at the very end of the last few days of the year, Susanna left him. They fought and fought and fought, and she finally said, look, I, I just can't do this anymore. It's, it's too difficult. And he was heartbroken. She was the love of his life at the time. And he wrote the song Wally. Wally is on collection here. But Wally, the story of Wally, which is interesting, when he recorded it, Susan Rogers, who was his engineer, said that it was probably the most emotional thing he'd ever done. Now, at the time, he'd been doing you know, some upbeat songs like Housequake and Playing the Sunshine and things like this. But she was like, and she, she said this is, well, that's great, but I want to hear some truth. I want to hear your heart. And so when Wally was recorded, it was really his heart. And he, you know, poured it out. And at the end of the session, he said, okay, now let's erase everything. And she's like, wait, what? And he said, put all 24 tracks on erase and just erase it. And he did. He erased it completely. And then two days later, he recorded it again, but is slightly differently and less emotional. And uh. so the other one is gone. But this is what he was doing in a sense is he was saying to the world, I don't want you to know this part of me. I don't want you to know this, this part. And so I will erase my past. And this is the new stuff. And I will start new from here. It's too late for sympathy. Whatever will be, will be. Going to a party. And if I don't find somebody, somebody will find me. Prince had a way of only letting you know what he wanted you to know. He was limited with the interviews he did, with the access you had to him and things like that, which makes this collection a little more fun because you get to hear things that might have been more... The recording studio in, in, with him, or with any artist, is really their own fortress of solitude, and especially Prince. So you're there if he wants you there. You're not there if he doesn't want you there. So when you listen to songs like Power Fantastic and you hear him talking, telling the band, look, this is what you're going to play, this is what you're going to play, and then we'll all go shh, and we'll all start, and then, Susan, uh, and then uh, Lisa comes in, that's about as close as you're going to get to being in the studio with him and listening to him on headphones. You know, that's the experience of what it's like to be in the studio with him, at least what they told me. Right. Um, I was never in the studio with him. I can just go by what they say. But when you hear Prince with his guard down talking to the band, that's that's amazing. I mean, that's that's taking you to that place where you're inside a room with this guy. And if you close your eyes, you can imagine him standing there working on this in front of you. Yes. Bobby? Yes. Everybody ready? No. Okay. Um, listen, starting with the piano, we're going to tune up and we're going to slowly, sh surely, within all of within a minute, we want to get quiet and then we're just going to build and build and build until we're just making loud fast noise okay and then i'm gonna go shh and then you just bring it down we just all kind of winds down real quickly and then lisa will start okay starting with piano okay ready and just trip there are no mistakes this time this is the fun tra track this one might not be the one we keep, but we just have fun with it. Play anything you want. Ready? Go with it. Whenever you want, Lisa. That's, that's the kind of thing that makes a collection like this, to me, one of those beanbag albums that you're going to be sitting on there for a week listening to. Yeah, something you can really study. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the cool thing about music like this uh, is that I really, I'm, I'm a big fan of certain artists, um, David Bowie, people like that, Led Zeppelin, but they change every album. And Prince was the same mm-hmm. way. He changed every album, new colors, new scheme, color scheme, new, uh, sometimes new instruments he'd find, things like this. So the nice thing about when you have this collection of albums, you have all these different albums, there's a way range in between. And with Prince, especially, there's a range of stuff that he did that is pretty good in between things. And so you sit there going, okay, what was in between? What were you between? And that's the transition stuff. And that's when you get a bunch of things that, that he may have thought, you know, if this doesn't work with this project, that doesn't mean it's not a good song. And so he would record it and then he would let it sit on the shelf waiting for the next project. And sometimes he'd take it back out for things. Sometimes he wouldn't. Sometimes he'd morph into a song that he would use on a later album. But what the songs on this do is give you an insight into what the guy was feeling on those days. And it's told in a chronological order. So you can kind of hear his story. You hear when he was happy, when he was sad, when he was upset, when he was filled with joy or hope or optimism or frustration. That is the kind of thing that, that, you know, sucks you in with this stuff. And, and some of this stuff is very personal. Sign of the Times is cobbled together from three abandoned albums, technically, Dream Factory, Camille, and Crystal Ball. And then, of course, like you said, there were new tracks recorded for the finished version that was mm-hmm. turned into Warner Brothers and ultimately released as Sign of the Times. Let's just talk a little bit about each of these three, just sure. a minute to see what they were. What, what was Dream Factory originally? What was the vision for that? Dream Factory came from a song that he recorded back in November of 85 with the revolution. It was about a little bit of an insult at uh, Paul Peterson. Paul Peterson was the singer for the family band he had. Paul basically got a better contract and left. Prince felt kind of abandoned this band. And so he was, Prince would get upset with somebody and his way of communicating that would be to throw some shade on him. Paul's like the best guy ever. I mean, I, I love Paul. He is so fun. And he took this thing in, in such a, uh, a spirit of, of, of joy. He's like, yeah, you know what? Prince wrote a song about me. And in the song, Prince is saying things like um, when he did it live and also in the studio, he had it too. But when he did it live, he, would, he was singing St. Paul Punk of the Month. And, you know, kind of like he's like, you know, like I'll, I'll show him. Yeah, right. But it was just kind of in, in good nature, you know, a little brattiness. Dream Factory came from that song and then he expanded it through a lot of other songs he was adding during that time. And that was when he was working on Under the Cherry Moon. That turned into Crystal Ball. Some of the songs from that went into Crystal Ball. Dream Factory was a Prince and the Revolution album. Crystal Ball was not necessarily a Prince and the Revolution album. He really sort of assembled that in November of 86, which was after he'd broken up the band. Camille, now here's the interesting thing about Camille is, is up until recently, Camille was always considered to be a single album of eight tracks. Going through this, we realized that Camille actually expanded into Crystal Ball. It became the Crystal Ball album and the Camille album were both called that. They, he went back and forth between calling it Crystal Ball or Camille. And this was, a, this was a recent find we had to find out that he was labeling things, you know, as, as Camille. When we weren't sure whether or not I was doing it as the singer or the band or the um, name of the album, we we don't know, but he was listing listing things as Camille, and even the collection Crystal Ball was referred to as Camille on some of the uh, tapes. What was his artistic vision for Camille? Because it's a little bit different than a lot of his other albums originally. The songs that he had on Camille, which are like Rebirth of the Flesh and Housequake, Fill You Up, are really kind of party songs. The single album of this was more of a, a joyful thing. The interesting thing to me is it's more of him finding a way to quickly say, I didn't need the revolution. They officially broke up and it was officially announced in mid-October of 86. And then within two or three weeks, he had this collection created, you know, of of songs. And like I said, Housequake and Feel You Up and Shockadelica, Good Love, Rock Hard and Funky Place. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an upbeat kind of thing. Sometimes people overcompensate when they've gone through a breakup and they'll be like, no, I'm look at me. I'm happy. And I kind of feel like maybe a little bit of that was this was, was, um, was, was pushing that narrative. Like, you know, I don't need anybody. 
And even rebirth of the flesh is his way of saying, look, you know what? I'm new. I'm new on this. This is all me. It's all rebirth now. I think he's, I think he got the, uh, the title probably from uh, his being enjoying Miles Davis. He had the uh, rebirth or birth of the cool. But I think that he was kind of saying in that song, he's like saying to the, you know, to Wendy and Lisa, you know, we are here. Where are you? You know, I mean, he's literally kind of throwing it out there. And again, Prince being a little bratty, kind of yeah. like, you know, that's how he communicates with that. He's, and he's even saying, it ain't about the money. We just want to play, you know, kind of saying, if you're doing this for money, then I don't want you around me. You should be doing this because you love me. Right. His, it's his form of communication. I mean, literally music was how he communicated. He didn't do interviews much. So when he had something to say, he said it in song. Rebirth of Flesh was him saying it to uh, everybody that this is where I am. I'm reborn, renewed. I don't need the other people. This is my own solo thing. Using the name Camille is kind of interesting because at that time he had just done the, um, the Madhouse album, which was going to be released without Prince's name on it. Um, and it hadn't come out yet, but he just recorded at the beginning of October. And so he's coming out with another album, Camille, which would not have his name on it. If there was something about what he was doing then where he just wanted to put things out, not necessarily as Prince, but to get them out there. There are different Still a way um, of maybe exercising some emotional demons without having to to deal with the repercussions on his own personal image, perhaps? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, it can be considered a side project, but yet it's directly from him. Um, his Each project he did would say something about him, would talk about where he was. This is what I'm feeling. Again, this is the colors I want to use. These are the, 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 um, the photos I want to use. He, very specific about what he wanted um, to do Camille you know, not putting his name on there is sort of saying, you know what, I want to have this judged on its own. Same with Madhouse. I want to have this judged on its own, not judged as a Prince project, but judged as its own project. And it, Camille is a great album. I mean, I, I love Camille. Um, uh, but then that morphed into Crystal Ball. It expanded into Crystal Ball. And like I said, the... the Along um, with some songs from Dream Factory though as well, correct? Yeah, yeah. He, would, he, would, yeah. he was taking stuff off all these projects. Not necessarily even the best songs, but the songs that would go with these projects. He, he was, yeah, he was putting he, together as a collection that worked together. Right, exactly. We've got some songs from Dream Factory, some of the songs from Camille, and some other songs that he recorded outside of those two ideas of collections of songs. Correct. And he turns in Crystal Ball to Warner Brothers, and it's a three-CD set, basically. Mm -hmm. It's three CDs or three discs worth of material. Triple album. And Warner Brothers says, it's too much. Let's do a double album. What was Prince's reaction? I mean, was he like, okay, or was he livid? I'll give you a little perspective of that time, and then I'll answer the question. Bruce Springsteen had just come out with his five-CD live set. And I think that there was a bit of Prince that was kind of feeling like, I can, I can do the same kind of thing. And also, I do think he had a, a, a little bit of a one-upsman thing where he was like, you know what? The band is broken up, but I'm going to show you something really powerful. This is my, this is my statement. Crystal Ball, he had referred to as being one of his most important songs he'd ever recorded. And so that was the title track of Crystal Ball. Um, so I think when he did this, it was like many artists, their art is an extension of them. So when he submitted my art to them and they pushed back, I do think he was, he was hurt. You know, right after it got pushed back, he started recording a few darker songs. He started recording Bob George and a few things like that. He was, there was a, I think an anger in him and Bob George ended up being on the Black Album. But I think there was a frustration during that time that within two years, I went from Purple Rain guy who could call his own shots to the label pushing back and saying, you know what? It's good, but we want it shorter. We can't do a three CD set or three album set at the time. So he went back in and chopped a bunch of the songs off. He had 20, 22 songs that he had originally submitted 
and he submitted it. He went, went back and chopped out a bunch of them, um, recorded uh, You Got the Look, and it became a 16-track set, um, which is tight. I mean, it, Sign of the Times is a tight album. Even songs like um, I Can Never Take the Place of Your Man had editing that recurred inside the, the song to keep it flowing. And he wisely realized that this is, this is the way to do it. It's a two-CD uh, two set, two-album set that can keep you entertained because no songs are, are duplicating the other songs. I Can Never Take the Place of Your Man is the oldest song on the set, re-recorded yes. for the release. Do you have any idea why Prince decided to bring this one out of Mothballs? It's a great song. Prince, Prince decided to bring it out because it's a great song. You know, it's a it's a killer track. It's, it's uh, the up up um, the remake of it, which is on the Sign of the Times album. To me, is one of my favorite songs on the album. It's a it's a great upbeat song. Um, the solo is one of these things that you get goosebumps during. I mean, especially when he does it live. I mean, when you see the Sign of the Times movie and you see him hear him playing that song live, it's like you can't help but get goosebumps when he does that. Yeah. Um, but even in the studio version, Prince has this rare ability to work with you on certain frequencies and when it hits you, you get goosebumps. Yeah. So I think that that's why, I mean, that song was originally a good song, a little dated sound wise, but you know, uh, live drums and stuff like this, it, his sound had changed and it's a testament to how he'd grown from 79 on to uh, 86, but it's a great song. And both versions are good songs. Yeah. You know, I, I just, and, and the cool thing is being able to hear how he originally envisioned it now. And then, hearing the difference between the two it kind of shows his growth yeah that's fun Okay, that was the 1979 version of I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man. And here's the same section from the version recorded for Sign of the Times. Teacher from Dream Factory, originally that's where that one came from, was a song that Prince handed off to Wendy and Lisa to finish while he was recording a movie. And I guess he let them take over and finish the recording. I think it certainly speaks volumes about how much he trusted them with, with his musical vision at that time. The amount of respect that he had for Wendy and Lisa is staggering. He literally would hand them tracks and say, you know, just do something to this. Which is something in my mind where I just think of Prince as like jumping from the drum kit to the bass, to the guitar, to singing a background vocal, and then playing a keyboard part, which to me says somebody who absolutely wants to retain control over everything. But this is the exact opposite of that and totally shatters my mental image of what he was about. I, I agree with you completely. What this does is it contradicts all that we know about Prince. As a control freak, and he proudly said he was a control freak. He, he talked about that in many interviews where he said, yes, I'm a control freak. Um, but to be able to trust the quality control that Wendy and Lisa would give to him um, is staggering. I mean, the, the things that he would give them songs and he'd be off filming or off doing something. And to say, I want you to do this is mind-blowing because – most of the time they'd send it back and he'd go, yeah, I really like this. This is great. And he'd keep most of it. You know, there came a little times that they'd try something different and he'd be going, nah. but the, the trust he would have in them to do this. And I think that's part of why when they talked to him about certain things and they had fights, he felt like they, he had such trust in him, such intimate trust with them that he felt like they could hurt him. And so I think he pushed back. And I think that was why they, one of the reasons they broke up is because I don't think he wanted to be vulnerable. I don't think he wanted to be um, open to being hurt 
by somebody and somebody especially that knows him so well. Not only did they know him really well, Wendy's twin sister, Susanna, was the one that was engaged to him. So there's an intimacy on top of everything, an incestuous intimacy almost, because literally he's in a relationship with one of their sisters, the twin sisters. And Lisa Whoa. had been around for a long time. So it's, it's like it, there's a perfect storm of vulnerability there for him. And I think that when it came to it, he finally said, I can't be this vulnerable. I can't allow this to happen because you could hurt me so bad. And the amount of trust he had in Wendy and Lisa, especially during this time. That's why this album is, a, to me, a Princeton and the Revolution album, if not a Prince and Wendy and Lisa album. You know, I mean, yeah. that could yeah. he could have gone that direction too. Um, but all these guys were, were on certain things. Like, it's going to be a beautiful night, has the entire band on it. And that's, that's what Prince did by putting that on the Sign of the Times album was kind of say, you know what? I got a new song, song that we wrote, the song that he wrote that day before the concert. It's funny because he wrote it that afternoon and they play it that, that evening live, which is an incredible amount of nerve to think I'm going to do a nine minute song and see if everybody likes it. I just wrote it a couple hours ago, right before dinner. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's trust. That's trust in what you got with your band and yourself. So when he put that on the album, it's almost like a curtain call, a final bow for the revolution saying, we're not going to do a final tour. We're not going to do a final thing, but here's a song of them doing it live. And thank you very much. Bow and exit stage left. Prince went to see Bonnie Raitt at the Beverly Theater in Los Angeles in December of 86, and then he reached out to her to let her know that he wanted to work with her. And there are four songs on this collection, Jealous Girl, There's Something I Like About Being Your Fool, Promise to Be True, and I Need a Man, that he wrote for her. And was this originally going to be a full album? Yes, it was going to be producing a full album back then. And he didn't really write these for her. These are... Um, all songs that he pulled out of his own vault. Okay. Um, Promise to be true was from 1983, I think. Um, Jealous girls from before then. You know, all these things were were songs that he'd done much earlier. I need a man was with a band he called the Hookers, which was the early version of Vanity Six. So all these songs were songs that were in his vault. He brought them back out and updated and recorded them new in January of 1987, and then presented them to her. This is during a time when she was just getting some of the fame that she would eventually get. I don't know whether these would have been great for her, but she recorded her vocals for him and she was up at Paisley Park working on this stuff. And, and it just, they both got so busy that they never finished the project, which oh, is unfortunate because I would like to have heard. I sure would have too, with. boy. I know. I love Bonnie Raitt. Now imagine, yeah. imagine them working together and, 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 but imagine if, if she had been further along and could really have pushed for what she wanted the sound to be. I mean, to hear those two play guitar together, because you know they would have mm. done something live if they released it. They would have at least done one show where one sat in with the other. Oh, God. Imagine you know, that would have been uh, the best. I know. Can I Play With You, Miles Davis added trumpet to this one. How did they start to collaborate? They had met at LAX uh, in passing. <laughs> How random. How random. I know. They, they, were, they were literally um, both flying in. Alan Leeds, who was Prince's manager, or at least, uh, I don't know if he's a manager at the time, but he's a road manager, but they're great friends, if nothing else, um, said, hey, that's uh, Miles Davis. You know, and So they went over and talked, and, and Prince and Miles got into a limo and just sat there and talked for like 20 minutes. And they were both signed to Warners. Uh, Miles Davis, I think, just recently signed with Warners. Right. So there was an interest there with everybody about working together. So later that month, Prince recorded two songs, Can I Play With You and A Couple of Miles, that's the other song. And he gave Miles Davis... Uh, can I play with you? And said, uh, I'd like you to, you know, add something to this. Do what you do what you want. I mean, I think we're I think we're similar. I think we've got a mindset similar. Let me hear what your thoughts are. And the cool thing about something like that song is 
the song title is flirty as if you're talking to a woman. Can I play with you? But he's also literally saying to Miles Davis, can I play with you? Yeah. Let's yeah, play how together. How cool is that? Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it works on several levels when you're looking at it going, oh, okay, that makes sense. And, and Miles said, yeah, you can play with me. I'll play with you. And he, he put his track <laughs> down on it. Prince got it back March of, of 86. And they both decided it wasn't quite the direction that Miles wanted to go in. Still a cool song. Just did not work out. There's a quote that Prince had that I want to say that's really funny. Let me read that to you. He said, Miles loved good musicians and cool people. He was also the type of guy who would invite Mick Jagger to his house and make him sit outside. He was the type of guy who would tell you to meet him in his dressing room, then be sitting there butt naked. But I loved it. And I think that's kind of fun because I think he saw a kindred spirit in many ways in Miles Davis. You know, and Miles would call him sometimes and just say, look, we're going to, you know, Cicely and I are going to cook up some, some, uh, some food. Do you want to come by? And, you know, it got to the point where they were such friends, respectful friends. And I think that's kind of a cool thing. I just wish they'd gone more musically. The nice thing is this collection has the only live performance they did together. I was going to say, and and Miles is on the live DVD from the New Year's show from December 31st, 1987 at Paisley Park. Exactly. At the end of the show, Miles comes out and plays a little bit of Going to Be a Beautiful Night. And I almost wish they'd played a whole show together. Yeah. You know, where they could have gone. It, it's just, it's mind blowing where they could have gone. And that was the last show of the Sign of the Times tour, correct? It wasn't necessarily part of the tour, but it was the last concert he did of that set. When he did that concert, he'd already started working on Love Sexy. So he recorded several tracks for what would be Love Sexy. So he already moved on project wise because he didn't have a new set list. He thought, you know what? I've already had the band's already tight and the band was exceptionally tight. Let's get out there. We already know this show. Let's do it for a charity event. And it's a good show. I mean, the amount of stuff he puts in there and, and seeing him, he at the end of the, of the concert, he does a version of Purple Rain that he blends in all lang syne. Oh, um, wow. Oh, it's so good. Wow. I mean, it's one of, to me, one of his better shows. For a guy that has nothing but good shows, it's still one of his better shows. Isn't and, that great? and, you know, and seeing a, a clean version of this stereo mix, it's just, it's just, you know, this is the kind of thing you're going to be, you know, people are going to be sitting there going, Oh yeah, this is a Friday night. I'm just going to pop this in and just enjoy this from top to bottom. What makes Sound of the Times Prince's masterwork versus Purple Rain? Hmm. Purple Rain is still written with innocence. There's a naive quality to certain things that he was still doing at the time because he hadn't hit major mega stardom yet purple rain was the thing that made him prince um yes a lot of us liked him before then but he could no longer operate underneath the radar everything up until purple rain actually everything up until around the world day because around the world day was written and and mostly done before the purple rain juggernaut are his innocent times and it may not sound innocent when you're singing about darling nikki but i'm talking about innocent in the sense that not knowing that every noise he makes is going to be judged. And right. I think there's a, there's a freedom to that, to being able to, to do that with Purple Rain. I think by the time he got to Sign of the Times, there was a thought about his legacy and his maturity. He had now seen the top of the mountain and also then seen his next two albums do okay, but not like Purple Rain. And, but he had a different plan. I mean, by this point, he knew how to be successful. And I think Prince was one of these guys that could do what he wanted musically, but he was trying to find new sounds and new ways to express himself. Ballad of Dorothy Parker, things like that are very different than pretty much anything he'd ever done. Power Fantastic, which didn't make the album, but it's on this collection, is very different than what he'd ever done. So he was looking for those new sounds, new Fairlight keyboard or, you know, whatever it was he was using to get these sounds. And, and so that's what Sign of the Times is. Sign of the Times is created under the pressure of the problems he was going through at the time. 
Whereas I think Purple Rain was created out of an innocent place of what can I do? You know, what can I, and, and I think sometimes maybe more of what can I get away with? What can I do now? Now that I've shown you, here's my bag of tricks. I'm going to put that bag of tricks over here and I'm going to bring out a whole new bag of tricks. And so on the tours he was doing like that, whether it's Sign of the Times or Parade, he didn't play a lot of the songs from Purple Rain. It was almost like, that's what I did then. I've got a new new bag of tricks here and we're going to listen to those and you're going to jam with me and I hope you may, I hope you make the voyage with me. And and we all, most of us did. Here's the other thing about this era. From 1999 all the way up to Love Sexy, each one had a different sound, different color scheme, different tour, completely different tour. Each one was a different year. I mean, 1982, 1984, 1985, 1986, 1987, and 1988 all had variations of tours that each one was a little different than the other. It wasn't like he, you know, a lot of musicians would go out and play basically the same set, add some of their new songs. The Stones will pretty much do, you know, your standards. Sure. But, but Prince said, you know what? I'm not going to do what you expect. And sign the times with what you didn't expect. And whether it was him trying to get back his R&B roots with something like a door, or whether it was him expressing where he felt about religion with the cross or relationships with the forever in my life, it was his diary. This is what he's thinking. This is where he's going through. This is where his mindset is. This is what goes on in his world. And that, to me, is part of the fun of this album is the access he allows the listener to have to his inner workings. That's what makes this album so damn good. Thank you, Dwayne. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks very much to Dwayne for such a great conversation about the remastered and reissued Prince Sign of the Times, which is absolutely loaded with all kinds of fantastic unreleased music. If you haven't checked it out yet, do yourself a favor. Thanks very much for listening. Be well out there. See you next time. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved.